Well, that passage that you uh, just heard read, Matthew 24, 1 to 35, is, is approximately uh, the first third of the passage that we're looking at over the six weeks of this series called uh, Beginning with the End in Mind. It's the very last sermon uh, that Jesus preaches prior to him being arrested and eventually crucified in Matthew chapter 26 and 27. And so we are looking over the course of these six weeks at the very last thing that Jesus taught. Last week we started this series and we looked at the first just couple verses where the disciples walk out of Jerusalem with Jesus and they kind of look back and they marvel at the, the temple in Jerusalem, the buildings, the magnificence, the size, the scope, whatever. And they just say to Jesus, you know, they remark what an incredible structure, facility it is. And Jesus says to them, well, don't get too attached to it because it's all going to be destroyed. And they ask Jesus a question that then launches this entire sermon. And the question they ask Jesus is this. I, I think as I've studied and read up with different scholars and whatever, I think they think they're asking one question. They say, when will these things, in other words, the destruction of the temple, when will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They, they think, that, in other words, the question they're asking is, Jesus, you say the temple is going to be destroyed. When is that going to happen? And, and how will we know when the temple is about to destroy, be destroyed, which will bring human history to an end and bring in the dawning of the eternal kingdom of God? How will we know that's about to happen? And, and what I proposed last week, based on the research that I've done, is that Jesus takes that one question and he splits it into two. That in effect, he says, you're asking two different questions. When will the temple be destroyed and how will we know? And when will you return and usher in the eternal kingdom? And, when, and how will we know? And the passage that we just read was Jesus' exhaustive answer to the first question. When will the temple be destroyed and what will be the signs that will tell us that it's coming? And that's the passage we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at three sections that Jesus basically breaks his answer into three sections. And he says to them, you want to know what the signs will be that the temple is about to be destroyed? Let me give you three things to think about. The first section, Jesus basically describes general global history. And he says this, he says in verse six, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Um, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Jesus says, you're going to hear about wars and you're going to experience war and you're going to be afraid of war and you're going to hear about famines and earthquakes. But you need to know, Jesus says, these are not the signs of the end. These do not indicate that the end is coming. In fact, quite the opposite, Jesus says, this is just the beginning. This is the beginning of birth pains. Um, at the beginning, the, probably the first birth pains 
birthing pains that a woman will experience when told. I've never experienced pregnancy, but are called Braxton Hicks pains. And they're actually uterine contractions that begin very, very early on in pregnancy. They're not labor. They're not indicative of labor. You're not even close to labor. You're months and months and months and months and months away from giving birth to this child. Braxton Hicks contractions are simply reminders that you are pregnant. They are pains that let you know that you have a baby inside. And Jesus says, when you hear about wars and you hear rumors of wars, when you hear about the U.S. engaging nuclearly with North Korea, that is not a sign of the end. When you hear about famines in Africa and earthquakes in Mexico, these are not signs that the end is coming. These are the very beginning of the birth pains. These are the the reminders. That pain in the world is a reminder That the world is in a desperate need for the redemptive love of God. And that God is birthing something new. So he says, what will be the signs? Well, first of all, the world is going to be a place of chaos and turmoil. But that is not a sign of the end. And then he narrows in his focus. Instead of just talking about general global history, he focuses on the disciples' experience in general. says in verse 9, then you will be handed over. To be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. Jesus says, here's what your experience is going to be like in particular. As a follower of me. People are going to hate you because you love me. They're going to mistreat you. And as has happened throughout the history of the church. And is happening right now in other places of the world. Christians are being arrested and even executed precisely because of their faith. And Jesus says the wickedness, the evil that will be directed against you because of your faith at times will be so severe that many people will lose their faith in the process. He said their love will grow cold and they'll wander away from him. And he says it's just, it's the world is a chaotic and difficult place, but it will be more chaotic and more difficult for people who follow me. And then he zooms in again to the experience of Christians who are living in the southern part of Israel called Judea. And it says in verse 15, when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation spoken through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So Jesus says, so there's not really a sign globally Because the world is just filled with wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines. That's just the way life is. And your life is going to get harder because people are going to mistreat you because of your faith. That'll be kind of the way that life is for people who follow me. But then he gets real specific and he says, but if you're living in Judea, in the southern part of Israel, and you see the abomination that causes desolation, it's time to run for the hills because the temple is about to be destroyed. That phrase, abomination that causes desolation, has been over the history of the church. Scholars have speculated about what that means. But the majority of scholars feel pretty comfortable uh, understanding where Jesus gets this language. He's referring to something written by the prophet Daniel a few hundred years before Jesus was born. And Daniel is writing the abomination that causes desolation. Daniel's writing about a very specific event in Jewish history. 
When the king of the Greeks, Antiochus Epiphanes, surrounded Jerusalem, laid siege to the city, stormed the temple, and set up an altar to Zeus with an idol to Zeus, and then sacrificed pigs in the Jewish temple as a sacrifice to Zeus. That event was an abomination. It was revolting. It was sacrilegious. It was uh, beyond any horror that a Jewish person in that era could imagine. And it caused desecration. It desecrated the temple. It made it, it destroyed everything that the temple was for. And Jesus says, when you see something like that happen again, know that the temple is about to be destroyed. Well, what kind of event could be like that? Well, in the gospel according to Luke, Luke reports the same sermon preached by Jesus. But when he gets to this point, he says something different than, Jesus, than Matthew does. It says this, Luke 21 verse 20. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, then you will know its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Luke says this. He says, when, when the city of Jerusalem is surrounded by Roman armies laying siege to the city, just know the time has come to run for your life. The Roman armies surrounded the city of Jerusalem in 66 or 67 CE. And in, um, the city of Jerusalem fell to the Romans in 70 CE. And when it did... The Roman soldiers marched straight into the temple in Jerusalem and they set up a flag, one of their war banners with the Roman eagle on it. And they burnt incense in worship to the Roman eagle and they declared Caesar is Lord. Jesus says, when you see that desecrating act, blaspheming the temple, you know its destruction is near. Run for the hills. Jewish Christians who were living in the southern part of Israel ran for the hills in 68 CE and they hid in the caves in Pella. I think that is what Jesus is talking about. He says, when you see the Romans attacking the city, the time is very close. Save your life. Run for the hills. So when will this happen and what will be the sign? Well, the world will be in chaos. Your life will be hard because of your faith, but you'll really know when you see the Romans sacking the city of Jerusalem, you better run for your life. And then Jesus describes, I think in symbolic terms, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. He says this in verse 29, he says, immediately after the suffering of those days, other translations say the distress of those days, um, he's talking about when the Romans were laying siege to the city of Jerusalem. That the, the horror of life in Jerusalem at that time was unlike anything Israel had ever experienced before. They cut off food supplies and the famine that settled on the town. People were dying of starvation. People were resorting to cannibalism, eating their own children. Disease was running rampant. Innocent people were being slaughtered. The, the Jewish nation, historians figure, have never experienced anything that was so totally horrific as the experience of the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. He says, immediately after the suffering of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will far from, fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. 
Some folks have read that, pa- that passage literally and have thought that some of the signs of the end would be astronomical, things that happen up in the stars and in the cosmos. But most scholars believe that this actually ought to be read symbolically because Jesus in these verses is quoting the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 13 and Isaiah 34. You can look it up in your own time. Where Isaiah is symbolically prophesying the judgment of God falling on the nation of Babylon and the nation of Edom. And the way Isaiah describes the judgment of God being exercised on these two nations in real-time historical circumstances, the way he describes it symbolically is to say the sun was dark and the moon didn't give its light and so on. Because in the ancient world, in every other nation except for Israel, the sun, the moon, the stars, these were all divinities. They were cosmic powers. They were uh, demonic forces that were to be worshipped. And so when it says this, that God is going to exercise his judgment, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky. That's a symbolic way of saying God is defeating his enemies at a cosmic level. The powers, it's, it's one translation says the heavenly bodies, but it says the powers of heaven will be shaken. God is winning the victory over his enemies. This is... In this case, Jesus is saying, and in this instance, the enemy that God is judging is Israel. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is God's judgment symbolically described here. God's judgment on Israel because they have rejected him in as much as they have rejected Christ. Which is what Jesus describes next. Verse 30, he says, then will appear the sign of man in the heavens. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now, read literally, this can sound an awful lot like the disciples asking, when will you return? What will be the sign of your coming? And Jesus says, well, then the Son of Man will come on the clouds. And it sounds like he's answering that question. But again, I think Jesus has to be read speaking symbolically because he's quoting the prophet Daniel, who was writing symbolically when he says in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, in my vision at night, I looked and there was before me one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Um, The prophet Daniel is symbolically predicting the moment in time when a human being goes into the presence of God, sits down at the right hand of the throne of God, and assumes authority over the kingdom of God. And Daniel said that was something that was going to happen in the first century uh, of this era. When he says... The son of man coming on the clouds. One of the things that's difficult in in both Hebrew and Greek, this is where it gets a little tricky with the symbolism. One of the things that gets tricky in Hebrew and Greek is that the word for coming and the word for going is the same word. And so when you read a passage like this, you have to try and figure out whether the Messiah is coming or going. And here it's not clear, but in Daniel it is. 
He's going from earth to the throne room of God where he will sit down and assume authority over the kingdom of God. This passage isn't describing Jesus coming from heaven to earth on the clouds. It's describing Jesus going from earth to reign over the kingdom of God in heaven. By virtue of his death on the cross and his resurrection. That's what makes Jesus the Messiah. And that's what he means when he says, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. The word sign means like a banner that soldiers carry into war. It's a, it's a very long wooden pole with a wooden crossbeam along it and on the pole hangs a banner that contains the symbol or the logo of the army of the kingdom that is marching into battle. Picture this. A very tall wooden piece with a wooden cross piece, and on the wooden piece is hanging the symbol of the kingdom that is marching into battle. I think this is a symbolic way of describing Jesus hanging on the cross. Again, he's quoting from Isaiah, who says that when God judges Babylon in Isaiah 13, he's going to plant his banner, his cross-shaped banner on the hill, And the symbol that will hang on the banner is the Messiah. That's what Isaiah says. So Jesus is saying this. He said, in those days, after the siege of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem and the temple are going to be destroyed. As God's judgment against Israel... Because the Messiah who died, because they rejected the Messiah who died on the cross and who has gone to sit at the right hand of the Father and assume authority over the kingdom of God and is now sending his angels with a loud trumpet call uh, to gather his elect from the four winds. Again, because we're reading symbolically, the word angels actually also just means messengers. It's the same word. So Jesus, this is what he's describing. Dies on the cross. The the banner of God, that cross-shaped banner of God is raised up into the air, planted on the hill where Jesus dies on the cross. And then he goes to the throne room of God to sit as king over God's kingdom. And what he does is he sends out his messengers throughout the world like his advancing army carrying the good news of the gospel of God throughout the world. And because the Jews rejected Jesus, God is going to judge them by destroying the temple. That's what Jesus is predicting. And what on earth does that have to do with any of us? Right? The temple was destroyed 1,947 years and one month ago. How does it help us that Jesus is warning his disciples about how they can know the temple's about to be destroyed? But here's, here's how I think we can hear this text. To a Jewish mind, the destruction of the temple was the single most unfathomable, horrible, horrific, sacrilegious, despair creating event that they could have possibly imagined. 
For them, it would have represented literally loss of life, loss of family, loss of home, loss of comfort, loss of community. More significantly, it would have represented the loss of the presence of God, the loss of the sense of God's power and protection. To a Jew, the destruction of the temple would have felt like the end of the world. Which is why the disciples ask the way they did. And you and I haven't lived through the destruction of the temple, but you and I have lived through moments that feel like the end of the world. What does Jesus say in the beginning? He says that in those days there will be wars and rumors of wars. Some of us know what it feels like to fight what feels like a never-ending war in our life, in our soul, in our spirit. A never-ending war against sin. A never-ending war in some of our relationships. A never-ending war against our brain. A never-ending war against our heart, our emotions. A never-ending war you know, against addiction. And never, we know what it feels like to fight wars or to be afraid that we're going to be called to fight. A never-ending war against our body in the form of a diagnosis. Jesus says, in those days, the world will be filled with famine. There are some of us who know what it feels like to be starving, literally starving and wondering where our next meal is coming from. But some of us know what it feels like to be starving emotionally for love, to be starving or to be starving emotionally for stability, to be starving relationally for love, to be starving spiritually for a sense of the presence and love of God, for an encounter with the divine. Jesus says, in those days, there will be earthquakes. I think some of us know what it is to have our lives and our worlds shaken to the core. Shaken by the news, shaken by our news, shaken by a diagnosis, shaken by a secret, shaken by a betrayal. We even lived through the destruction of the temple and the horror that that would have been, but we have lived through moments that have felt like the end of the world. And some of us are living there now and some of us will in the near future. And the question I think that we can reflect on in this text is what is Jesus inviting us into? How can we live when it feels like we're living through the end of the world. What does that look like? And Jesus says in this passage, three things to his disciples about how they are to live that I think apply equally well to us. And the first is this, and I, and I do not mean for this to be offensive. The first thing Jesus says to his disciples is, keep calm, keep calm. Back in verse six, he says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. But see to it that you are not alarmed. He said, don't let this stuff freak you out. Now, I know some of you are carrying very heavy burdens right now. Some of you are living through trauma and chaos and fear and anxiety like you never have experienced before. And I don't mean for this to minimize or trivialize your experience. I know how deep it is. I've heard some of your stories. I've lived through those moments myself. But what I think Jesus is saying is we live through these experiences and we feel like our world is coming to an end and Jesus says, don't freak out. This is not the end. This is not going to be your undoing. 
In fact, what Jesus would say is that God knows what you're going through right now. The Old Testament of the Bible calls him the God who sees. God sees what's going on in your life right now. I don't know why God hasn't chosen to do something about what's going on in your life right now. I don't have the answer to that. But God sees what's going on in your life. And it breaks his heart, this thing that you're confronted with right now. And in fact, this is one of the very reasons why God sent Jesus into the world. God sent Jesus to destroy the power of sin. Our sin and other people's sin. God sent Jesus to destroy the power of pain. God sent Jesus to destroy the powers of chaos. God sent Jesus to bring healing and hope and restoration and order into our lives. And we can face those end of the world type experiences and not be alarmed and not be afraid and not freak out and not lose our minds if we can hang on to the hope that God is doing something new through the midst of the pain. And this is where I really, I lean into this idea in Matthew 24 verse 8 that these are the beginning of birth pains. These are the beginning of birth pains. It is in the midst of this pain that God is giving birth to something in your life. I have it on good authority that pregnancy can be a very painful thing. <laughs> and that the pain of pregnancy is, is multitude. It is the pain of backache and the pain of joint pain and the pain of headaches and the pain of fatigue and the pain of Braxton Hex and the pain of nausea and the pain of vomiting never mind the actual the pain of heartburn and the pain of labor the labor pains themselves in fact pregnancy I am led to believe can be for some people such a painful experience that they eventually arrive at the point where they say I just cannot afford my body cannot handle me doing that again it is a very painful experience and yet what's happening in pregnancy in the midst of and through and because of the pain something new is being birthed something beautiful and fresh and innocent and wonderful. Something that will literally change who you are and will change everything that you know to be true about the world. And that doesn't make the pain any less painful. But maybe we can survive these end of the world type experiences if we find a way to hang on to the hope that through the midst of the pain, God is giving birth to something new. That God's redemption is coming. Jesus says, keep calm in hope. Here's the second thing he says. Stand firm in faith. Verse 13, he says, because of the increase in wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Jesus says, listen, he said, life at times is going to be so hard, especially for people who are followers of Jesus. The wickedness and the evil that you're going to absorb in your life, primarily because you're a follower of mine, this over time is going to make many people give up on faith. That's a chilling statement. The love of most will grow cold. Most people will drift in their faith away from me. In fact, in the midst of pain, the temptation is incredibly strong to give up on 
believing that God is doing something in the midst, that God is there with you, Jesus is up to something and whatever. The, the temptation to give up faith is enormous, which is why I think Jesus warns three times in this passage against false prophets. He says something, I guess, verse 23. At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Messiah, or there he is. Do not believe it. He says, in those moments, there's going to be a lot of voices that are saying to you, listen, I can help. I can ease the pain. Do this. It'll make it better. You can make things go away. You don't have to deal with this. If you walk away from putting your faith in Jesus and put your faith you know, in self-help or whatever, you can fix this. You don't have to be living with the pain. And many people in the midst of pain give up on Christ and they turn to something else, trying to make their life easier. And the truth is, Jesus never promised to make our life easier. He just promised to make it better. He promised to make it better. He says, stand firm. Those who stand firm to the end will be saved. Stand firm in faith. That doesn't mean there's not going to be questions. Of course there will. Ask Job. The godliest man of his era had it all, lost it all. And most of the Old Testament book of Job is Job shaking his fist at God saying, why are you doing this to me? It's not fair. And God says of Job, he did not sin by asking those questions. Now, God never gives Job an answer. And that's why I don't have an answer for you when you say, why is God doing this? I don't know. I don't know why this is happening in your life. God's answer to Job was, trust me. There will be doubts. Read Psalm 73. The psalmist says, you know, I try really hard to live my life for God, but I look around and all the people who didn't seem to care were all getting fat and happy and their lives were going awesome and mine sucked and I almost lost my faith. There will be those doubts. There will be anger. The prophet Jeremiah says to God, you lied to me. You never told me how hard this would be. You read the Psalms, three quarters of the Psalms are people who are angry at God for how their life is going, angry at God for ignoring them. And God is okay with our anger. There will be moments of darkness. The Apostle Paul says, There were times where I just wanted to die. But Jesus says, Those who in faith can hang on till the end will experience that beautiful, redemptive new thing that God is birthing in the midst of the pain. Third thing, keep calm in hope, stand firm in faith, persist in love. He says, the love of most will grow cold. Don't let it happen to you. No matter what's going on, persist in love, in your love for God. Persist in practicing the loving presence of God, even when you don't feel it, even when you don't feel like it, even when God feels far away, even if it's only to yell at God. Keep your connection with God alive. Practice the loving presence of community. Practice togetherness. Practice vulnerability. In humility, practice the ability to receive other people's love for you. Don't isolate. Don't drift. Don't wander away. Don't let your love for other people, don't let your love for the community grow cold. Press in instead of drawing away. He's, don't, don't let your love for the world, don't let your love for life grow cold. 
sees the beauty, sees the, what joy there is, see life and love rather than only ever seeing your pain and your hurt. Embrace the life and the love that there is to be embraced in the world. But we can live through these end of the world kind of moments, I think, to the degree that we're committed to keep calm in hope and believe that God is birthing something new, to stand fast, stand firm in faith, and stay clinging to Jesus and persist in love, keep pressing into love. It was not hard for me to find an example of this because for some time my wife and I have been following the blog of a woman named Julia Bayer who attended the Meeting House Church in Oakville who was diagnosed with ovarian cancer at 26 years of age and she blogged the last 18 years of her life, her faith journey through this, the journey of dying of cancer. I read her last blog post again this week. A month before she died, Julia writes this. I'll read just pieces. She said, as I shared in my last blog, given the progression of cancer within my lungs and encroaching on major organs, we have moved from treating the cancer to managing the symptoms of the cancer. She decided to receive palliative care. We'll never forget the moment my oncologist said he believes I have less than six months. While it's startling to receive a number and move forward without medical treatment, the peace of God still powerfully reigns in my heart, mind, and soul. Thank you all for your ongoing prayers for this inexplicable peace. She says, Andy and I are so thankful that he's off work so we can spend our quality time together. Our marriage has never been short of bucket lists and now is no different. The scope and parameters may have changed from visiting more countries than our age, physical endeavors, hosting parties, and planning day trips or weekend adventures, but the excitement of a fun-filled bucket list continues. Our list is full of 30-minute outings close to home like bundled wheelchair cruises downtown, mall visits to people watch, drive throughs for special warm drinks, Andy picking up the morning paper and coffee so that we can nostalgically do the crossword together like he would with his grandma, etc. He said our first outing since being home from the hospital was last night and it was a raging success. The wheelchair was perfect and Andy whisked me down the Burlington Pier with our warm drinks from home. The goofy smiles plastered on our faces elicited many cheerful hellos and my eyes brimmed with tears. I was so overjoyed by the thrill of it all. Praise God for wheelchair freedom and for Andy and my love for adventure. And she describes the care her family's providing and she closes like this. So yes, I'm home under palliative care. That reality is real, hard, and a burden of such uncertainty for us to bear, especially my close family and friends. We all need your prayers more than ever for those hard personal moments when it really hits. But as I've completely surrendered and I'm choosing to fully trust God in this season, I've been embraced by the warmth of God's unfailing love for me. The sunrises here are beautiful over the water. And one morning my heart was just singing this verse. Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love for I have put my trust in you. God's love for me right now is so palpable. It's beautiful. 
Out of this unfailing, relentless, overwhelming love is where a wellspring of inexplicable peace reigns and unspeakable joy bubbles. In God's perfect love-filled presence, I am filled with life, hope, peace, and joy. Praise God for these unspeakable gifts. And she died a month later. Maybe that's not where you're at right now. Maybe that's not what your story is right now. And that's okay. But what I think Julia shows, what Julia invites us into, is a life of keeping calm in hope. Standing firm in faith. And persisting in love. So that we can begin to experience the beautiful thing that God is birthing in the midst of whatever you're going through right now. Let's pray. Father, I can't even begin to imagine the stories that are sitting in the room right now. I know some, a fraction. God, I pray for those who are losing their mind to anxiety right now. Fearful of the future, afraid of what is to come. I pray that you would allow them to keep calm with the hope that you are doing something beautiful. Even in the midst of the pain. I pray for those who are drifting, God. Whose grip on you is weakening. I pray that they might feel that your grip on them is as tight as ever. And I pray that you would give them the strength to stand firm in faith. To not allow themselves and their lives to drift from you. I pray for those, God, who feel their love growing cold. Would you please stoke the fire of that love for you for the community you've surrounded them with, for life and for the world. Would you fan that love into flame all over again so that, Father, no matter what, our lives can be fully yours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.